Radio. As you guys know, I do not like to cover topics that have been covered a thousand times. But when I have an opportunity to talk to a badass author who was an expert on a certain topic, I'm going to take the opportunity to talk to that person. In this episode, you're going to hear an interview with author M.P. Priestley. He wrote a book called One Autumn in Whitechapel, which, if you go to ripperworld.net, you can download a chapter of his book for free and check it out. But I'm telling you, you will not be disappointed. This dude is amazing. Now, my Patreon subscribers already heard this episode, and they actually heard about an extra 20 minutes of us kind of bullshitting a little bit. We talked about the Cray Twins towards the end of the episode. We had a great time. He's an awesome guy, and he is very well informed. So, you will not be disappointed. Go visit ripperworld.net, download a chapter of that book for free, and I will post a link to where you can find the book as well. You're going to love this. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. Welcome everybody to Mysterious Circumstances Podcast, and I have a very special guest on with me today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's, uh, my name's well, it's Mick Priestley, but it's M.P. Priestley uh, is me, and I'm the author of Jack Ripper, One Autumn in Whitechapel. Well, before I ask, start firing away with some questions, um, what actually got you into Jack the Ripper case? Was it something that you had followed since you were young? Are you from the area? True crime always fascinated me. I'm, I'm originally from the, the northeast of England, so I live in Whitechapel now, but I'm from about, uh, about 300 miles north. And it's, uh, I think the first book I read was, it was a book about Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. And I'd never read anything like that. I was like, whoa, what is going on here? That fascinated me. And then it was Ted Bundy and John Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer and all these kind of guys afterwards. And uh, yeah, the, the, it's the, the psychology of it kind of fascinates me. Like, I don't think you could creep me out with blood and guts. Uh, it's the psychology of it that fascinates me. Like, why would you do that kind of thing? And then if you're reading your true crime books, if you read a book about Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy or whoever, it inevitably mentions Jack the Ripper in there. And I kind of found after a while, every true crime book you were reading was talking about this guy. And then when you move to London and you live right here, I mean, it, it's the it's the kind of the, the king of the cold cases, isn't it? So I think if, you, yeah, I think if you're interested in um, true crime, sooner or later, you're going to hear about Jack the Ripper. For those who do not know Jack the Ripper, go ahead and explain what happened in Whitechapel that autumn. Well, the, the Jack the Ripper case was a series of murders that took place between the 7th of August, 1888, and the 13th of February, 1891, of which there were eight of them altogether. Uh, five of them uh, were, they now talk about them as the canonical five. So you've got the five murders that everybody agrees on, 
this is only a more modern thing, though the police at the time said at least eight murders. So you had Martha Tabram uh, was murdered on the 7th of August, 1888. And you had Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Kelly. And that was the end of 1888. Then 17th of July, 1889, uh, there's a woman called Alice McKenzie was murdered in an arch, uh, in a uh, sorry, in a street that runs between Whitechapel High Street and Wentworth Street. Then on the 13th of February, 1891, there was a woman called uh, Frances Coles was murdered in an archway beside the Tower of London. Uh, so the police at the time believed that all eight of these murders were committed by the same individual. And he was given the name Jack the Ripper because somebody started writing letters to the newspaper, kind of like in the Zodiac case, claiming to be the killer, and would sign the letters Jack the Ripper. So that was the name that was given to him. But whoever the offender was, he was never actually caught. So he's an extremely notorious, uncaught serial killer from East London in the late Victorian times. What intrigued you about the psychology of Jack the Ripper? Uh, the same sort of thing that interests me about the psychology of numerous other offenders is it's, it's that it, it's a why would he do it? Whenever they arrest a serial killer, the first thing, oh, why did he do it? And it's that why that kind of fascinates me. And it fascinates me more the more you start diving into it. And it's like, uh, the, I mean, there's all sorts of things that go on within the human mind that uh, we're unaware of. But when you see Jack the Ripper and running around the streets, mutilating strangers at four in the morning, especially when they're going to hang you, if they find you, and they're going to be real nasty about it in the meantime, and you think, and for some reason, you still want to do it, your desire to commit these offences outweighs your better common sense and worries of getting caught. And it's just trying to imagine what that would be like. What a strange thing to do. And it's just uh, that, that whole thing, yeah, I find fascinating. What would cause an individual to head out and act like that? You see what I mean? The same thing would do it. I would think the same thing about any of the other serial killers. You could run out and do all that stuff today if you wanted to, but why the hell would you do that? And then, but this guy, it's the most important thing to him. And it's just, uh, yeah, that weird human psychology thing is fascinating, especially since with the, in the modern cases as well, it's through the psychology and understanding the offender that they often find themselves catching the offender uh, as well, which is something that's often missing in Jack the Ripper books. They tend to read like these spooky ghost mysteries. So that somebody had to put a modern eye on it and say the sort of things that they would say in a modern investigation. Why do you think the police had such trouble actually catching this killer because i know the population of london at the time specifically whitechapel was very very below the mean line like is very poverty stricken and was it that the cops just didn't really care as much or did uh viciousness of the crimes just something that they had never seen before at the time People often say, um, oh, the killer wasn't caught because the police were incompetent or whatever. But I'm, I'm pretty sure in 2019, one in three murders went unsolved. So you think if you, you know, if you look online for uncaught serial killers, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And I mean, back in uh, Victorian times, I mean, the way you were going to catch him, bearing in mind, I mean, there's no cameras, there's no fingerprints until 1901. There's no you know, DNA or anything like that. The way you were going to catch the killer in Victorian times was either catch him red-handed and see you doing a murder, got you, or... Somebody saw you, maybe there was a witness, you know, for some reason we suspect it was you, we go to your house, you got a load of evidence in there. Or if you admit it was you, we go to your house and you got a load of evidence in there. But apart from that, I mean, if you went down the road, even today, and murdered a guy, and I didn't see you do that, run him in the dark, and I didn't see you do that, get home, keep your mouth closed, 
you know, throw your knife away and you didn't even know who that was. Even today, that would be extremely difficult to find them. So I think whereas the killer, uh, sorry, the police often get a lot of uh, stick, if you like, saying that they were incompetent. When you read a lot of the original files, a lot of these, uh, like the leading police officers, and particularly the investigating doctors in the case, I actually thought to be quite ahead of the time. Uh, when you hear like some of the things they're saying, this is just very much the sort of thing an investigating with teams uh, would say today. So I think the police basically did everything they could with the minimal amounts that they had, and, and he was just able to get away. I think it's luck on part of the killer rather than incompetence on the part of the police uh, that allows them to get away. And like I said, I mean, there are serial killers running around right now uh, that are getting away with it because they're similarly fortunate like he was. Now, I, I think that's... I think that's all it came down to. Yeah, I think the, a lot of the police did everything they could, but still he managed to get away because he was lucky enough. And uh, yeah, when, when you read the original files, you don't really see a lot of incompetence like people often um, claim that it was. Why do you think some victims were mutilated more than others? In, in a modern case, I would say there's, there's three different parts uh, to your, to your offence. So you've got your MO, you've got your ritual, and you've got your signature. So if you're Jack the Ripper, it appears that his MO is he, he walks around the streets looking for women who fit the same description as all the other ones did. Uh, he's walking around, he sees an opportunity. He then, if he gets to a, a secluded spot, he's able to do the deed. He's hit her in the face, strangled her, knife comes out, now the victim is dead. After this, you then have what's called your ritual and your signature. So you'd think if you've just murdered a guy, run, but you don't. You hang around for 10 minutes and chopping the body up and stab it a hundred times. Anybody could come along uh, while you're doing this. And this is, the, this is the part that excites the killer. So as it goes on throughout the case, you might find that getting more elaborate, but it, you might also find it's not as elaborate depending on the circumstances under which he committed the crime. So if he's, for example, he's got it down to the spot, he's done the deed, he's committed the murder, but he's, a number of things could happen from here. He might not be happy with the uh, crime scene location, he might he might feel under pressure. He might feel that somebody's coming. He might have done the murder and that the mutilation will be seen as a separate part from his MO. So the signature factors that go after that, where the victims are on the side, head, uh, head to the side, hand across the chest, every victim had that. But with when you see, for example, Elizabeth Stride or Francis Coles, who were less mutilated than the others, they would still, in a modern case, say that that was clearly still the same individual but having committed his murder, something made him feel uncomfortable where he didn't feel that he was able to sit here and do this. So when you see uh, Elizabeth Stride, for example, where people often say, was she uh, murdered by the same killer? It was the 30th of September, uh, 1888. And she was, when she was found, she was posed as the rest of the victims. But unlike the rest of the victims, she hadn't had a pl clothes pulled up and being mutilated. Uh, but also that was the first offense at that point that he committed south of the high street. Uh, there was a witness, there was police walking around. It was, even by his standards, that was an extremely dangerous place to do a murder and incredibly like, unlikely you'd get away with it. So people often say, oh, she wasn't mutilated there. Yes, but you still say it was the same killer. They would say it, a number of things from his state of mind, if he's drunk or on drugs, if he's feeling emotional one way or the other, if he's angry, if he feels on edge, or a number of things could force him to do the murder and leave a slightly different crime scene that was less violent than his other ones, perhaps, but you would still expect to see these same signature characteristics to each crime scene, which is what they would use today to tie the same offender to all of these victims. Is, is it pretty obvious to you that he targeted purposely? Uh, yeah, no, nowadays we would call that your victim profile. So let's say if, uh, if you're a serial killer, you don't murder everybody, you see. You know, if you see Ted Bundy's victims, for example, the vast majority of them, thin white women, 
long dark hair in the middle. They were about the same age. They were about the same height, give or take, only in a couple of exceptions. But they would call that his victim profile. So if, if he's walking around the university campus looking for victims, he meets his victims a chance by random, but he was specifically looking for people that fit that image. You see what I mean? That's the fantasy he has in his head. To act out this fantasy, he needs a woman that looks like that, that fits the fantasy. So with Jack the Ripper, all of his victims, again, with a couple of exceptions, are roughly all about the same age, or about the same height. If you'd met them, uh, they might have been similar in character. They were certainly in similar situations. Uh, they were all dressed in black at the time they were killed, which isn't a coincidence either. So there would have been all sorts of women of all you know sizes, shapes, and colors standing on the street corners, but he waits until somebody fitting that description comes along. So he's meeting his victims by chance, but like Ted Bundy's doing out on the university campus, he's walking on the streets of Whitechapel looking for somebody that looks like that. So you had mentioned earlier that the fact he would hang around for 10 minutes to mutilate the body or whatnot, how close do you think he was to getting caught on either one occasion, if not more than one occasion? Uh, to be honest, pretty much at every offense, he seems to be incredibly close to being caught. Uh, like some, some uh, closer than the other ones. Uh, so the ones he particularly, the murder of uh, Annie Chapman on Hanbury Street on the Saturday, the 8th of September, 1888, uh, he committed the murder in the, in the rear yard of somebody's house. So it obviously wasn't his house. He's come through the front door, through the house, committed the murder in the yard. And I think he, that one in particular, that murder is often overlooked by other people who kind of, uh, you know, write books on the subject. So it wasn't the first one. It wasn't the most violent. Uh, but that one in particular, I think he was incredibly lucky to get away with that to a point where you couldn't have done it again. I mean, he was sitting in somebody's rear yard at the time. If anybody had walked out the back door, he was in trouble. And you think you couldn't have done that again and got away with it. Uh, also, when he murdered Francis Coles on the 13th of February, 1891, uh, it was in a place called Swallow Gardens, which is two minutes from the Tower of London. Uh, it's like a big, it's a Victorian railway bridge with the, the railway arches underneath. And it was one of those railway arches she was found murdered uh, in the middle of it. And the policeman on his beat said he'd walked in the top of the arch, but it's in the pitch black in Victorian times. He's got his lamp on. He says he's walking under the dark in the arch. And as he got to about halfway in, realized there was a woman lying on the floor beneath him with a throat cut. And he could hear somebody running out of the alleyway at the other end of the passageway. But the police procedure said he had to stay there with the victim and render aid or whatever. So he had to stay with the victim, he said, for the rest of his days. It bothered him. He spent the rest of his days kicking himself. And whoever that was running out the end of the alleyway, he said, I could have got him, but I couldn't. I had to stay here because she was still alive. So I think that one in particular, he was extremely close to being caught there, which I think might also have something to do with the fact that he seems to disappear after that offense. Yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, him appearing and then suddenly disappearing. When the killing started, what did the police think? They're like, man, this guy just came out of nowhere you know, and started killing these women. Did they believe that there was possibly previous offenses that they hadn't known about, or did the person just move into town? Well, the, the, the police at the time uh, believed that it was a local man living in the immediate area. Uh, they think he was uh, drinking in the local pubs, a lot of which are still there, the Ten Bells and the, the Bell and the, the Princess Alice. I think he would sit in the pubs in Whitechapel. And then when it got to, say, midnight, half past midnight, which is closing time, it was the police's opinion that he, he lives somewhere in the immediate area. He's got a buzz going. They kick him out of the pub and he takes a scenic walk home. You see what I mean? So he lives two minutes away, but he just takes a walk. He's walking on the streets. He's probably got his knife in his pocket and he's looking for an opportunity. And this is, I mean, like in a modern case, 
well, the, the, there was a lot of things that you they would say today in a modern case that they were also saying about Jack the Ripper in Victorian times. The police believed it was a local man in the immediate area. They were fully aware that he was sexually motivated, targeting this specific type of uh, woman. And people often have this idea that the Jack the Ripper case was the first serial killer case, or he was the first serial. And of course, that's not accurate at all. He wasn't the first serial killer in this area. So when the police uh, were investigating the case, I think they were a lot more clued up uh, about the sort of individual they were looking for. And they were absolutely adamant. It was a local man living in the immediate area. Uh, and I think he would, he would approach the prostitutes uh, with fake money. So there was, a, there was a big thing at the time where they were trying to locate a suspect. Anybody who might be passing off fake coins to prostitutes, the police were extremely interested in. Yes, yeah, so I think the police knew at the time they were looking for a single man living in the area. They knew roughly how he was kind of operating, but he was just able to keep getting away with it. Because, I mean, bearing in mind, in the area, I mean, there were, there were other notorious cases in this area before then. So, I mean, it wasn't like before Jack Ripper came along, you know, the police didn't have any murderers to arrest. I mean, they, they, they knew what was going on. It, it was When you read it, the investigation was handled, obviously it was a Victorian investigation, but you'd be surprised as how ahead of the time some of these people were. So I guess that brings me to my next question about the letters and the messages that this person supposedly the killer was sending to the cops do you think it was somebody trying to claim you know responsibility without being warranted well there are, there are hundreds i mean literally hundreds of jack the ripper letters altogether possibly thousands of them and there's because once the first one hit the newspaper kind of similar with the zodiac case uh, the police said it became a national pastime and every idiot in the country was writing letters and winding each other up there's two letters that people tend to remember uh, there's one called the Dear Boss Letter. It was actually the second one uh, that arrived uh, to the police. But it was, it, it, sorry, it, it was the second one that arrived. The first one was sent to the police. The Dear Boss Letter was sent to the newspaper, but it was signed Jack the Ripper. So that was what gave him the name. That was the letter that went in the newspaper and exploded. And that's, that's, that's the first letter that everybody remembers. The second one uh, was one that's referred to as the From Hell Letter. And it was after the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. At the crime scene of Catherine Eddowes, the killer had removed her left kidney and taken it with him. And then when this letter turned up in the post, it allegedly had part of her missing kidney in it. But the police and the doctors at the time weren't actually able to confirm that because you didn't have the, you, you had to take the, the killer's word for it. This might have come from the butchers, which is what some of the doctors thought, or it might possibly have been a human kidney. So if that kidney was hers, it must have been written by the killer, but yeah, they weren't really sure about that. But the, the Dear Boss letter and the From Hell letter are the two that everybody remembers. And there's loads of other ones that are pretty obscure. In my opinion, I think they're all fake because there were, there were two. There were two when, when the Dear Boss letter arrived, uh, there were two schools of thought on that. The, the first school of thought is, oh, yes, the killer wrote it. The second school of thought is that it was a man named Thomas Bulling. And Thomas Bulling, uh, he was the boss at the newspaper. So when his letter turned up, dear boss, it was written to him at the newspaper agency. So he's the guy that said, hey, look at this letter I've got. And once he printed that in the newspaper, overnight he was selling triple the copies he was the day before. I have seen another letter uh, written by Thomas Bulling that I've printed in the book as well. And talking about something totally different and the handwriting looks incredibly similar. So I think, I think for, for my opinion, I think that the Dear Boss letters are fake. Uh, most people at the time thought that the From Hell letter was a fake, and the police said it was a national pastime, wasting thousands of police hours, all these other letters in between. Usually when you have a serial killer writing to the police, which is very rare, it's a very slim minority of serial killers, you'd actually have 
you know, calling you on the phone or writing you letters or something. And usually when they do that, a modern investigating team would say the motive for me writing, if I do the murders and I write you the letter, it is psychologically crucial to me that when you read this letter, you are under no doubt whatsoever that this is the, the murderer talking to you. It's to keep his thrill going. You see, so there's no point sending you the letter if you can go, ah, it's probably a hoax and throw it in the bin. So usually when you do get a letter from the Zodiac or the son of Sam or from Dennis Rader or whoever, they tend to mention things in there. You might mention your motive and why you say you're doing it. You might mention details that only the killer could know. You might give, I mean, all sorts of things that will be in the letter that when you read it, this is the killer writing it to you, no question about it. And Jack Ripper never does any of that. All the letters ever say, is I'm Jack the Ripper. You better watch out. I'm going to get you. I mean, anybody could be writing these letters. The police at the time believed there were hawks. And yeah, those two people still question, I think they're hawks as well. I think all of the uh, letters in the case were fake, in my opinion. That is totally fair. Uh, what about the message that was written on the wall? It was what, an alleyway or a side of a building? It was in between. Um, I mean, there was a, the one I think you're referring to. It was the uh, the 30th of September, 1888. They called it the double event. So we murdered Elizabeth Stride uh, over in Burner Street. She was found just after one o'clock. 1:45, uh, Catherine Eddowes was found in Mitre Square with her left kidney missing. But at that particular crime scene, he torn off part of the apron she was wearing, fled from the scene. It looks like he might have used it to wrap her organs in, but he, he, he fled from there. A couple of minutes run down the road and he's on Goulson Street and there was a, an archway. Uh, it was a big lodging house and the entrance into the lodging house was like an open doorway with no door on it. So anybody could just walk in off the street and up the stairs, if you see what I mean. And it was in that entranceway that the missing part of the apron from Mitre Square was found. And when it was found on the floor, there was a message written on the wall that said, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. And that was seen, yeah, as like another cryptic clue in the case. But at the time, the police weren't entirely sure if that had actually been written there by the killer or if it had already been on the wall when he just happened to walk by. You know, so he's gone running by in the dark, thrown this part of her apron into a random doorway, and from his point of view, just took off running and gone home. But there happened to be a piece of graffiti there, and some of the police believe maybe this had already been written. He'd come along, thrown this, it had nothing to do with him, and he took off again. The other school of thought is if he did write the graffiti on the wall, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Is that a clue or is it a deliberate red herring to throw you off the case? So that one, I think he might, <laughs> which isn't a great answer. I think he might have written that graffiti. But I think in the grand scheme of the case, it doesn't particularly matter. I, I think if he did write the graffiti, there were other points in the case where chalk graffiti was mentioned. Uh, so with the crime scene of Annie Chapman, there was a newspaper reporter had forced his way through the, the crowd in the hallway into the yard where he'd been immediately grabbed by the police and thrown back out of the house again. But as, as he got out into the yard there for a second or two, he claimed that he'd seen a message written on the back wall of the house in chalk that said five, 15 more, and I will give myself up. And that was never reported by the police. That was never reported anyway. But it was the news agency that reported that were actually fairly accurate about the other things. So I thought... For the sake of argument, if he did write that graffiti on Hanbury Street, I think he probably did write the graffiti in the doorway. But I don't know if he did that one. You see what I mean? I think he might have. If he did do that, it might have been to throw you off the case. It might have been, in a modern case, I would say possibly to increase his notoriety. He might have been aware at that point. He was a big deal in the newspapers. 
and he's deliberately now, I mean, no murder before that had he left a blatant clue like that. He might have done that to increase his notoriety. And if he had done that, he might well have written the graffiti on the wall. If he did write the graffiti on the wall, it also hints at the direction in which he lives, which I go into in the, in the book as well. But uh, yeah, I think he, he, he might have. I think if he did do that, I think all of the other stories of chalk graffiti are probably true too. I think that's uh, what a lot of people forget these days is that it's not 100% certain that he actually did it. It could have been already there. So nowadays, obviously, over 100 years later, we have all these suspects and all these theories. But at the time, who were the cops and you know the police trying to zero in on? How were they profiling this person and trying to come up with suspects? Yeah, I mean, it was the, the way a suspect tended to make themselves uh, suspicious was usually, I mean, I mean, there was only really one main suspect in the whole case, but there were other points in the case where there were rumors that it was an American guy at one point. There were rumors it was a Jewish guy. There were rumors it was, you know, whatever. So there was, and as the case went on, yeah, they never really named a name, but they were looking for an American guy. They were looking for whoever, and then that came to nothing. The only real one where there was an actual suspect was a guy um, after the murder of Marianne Nichols. Police had been asking women in the area, you know, have you seen any strange characters in the areas? Anybody threatening you or whatever? And they all said it's this guy. Uh, everybody called him Leather Apron. And he wore a long leather apron like a, like a blacksmith or somebody would wear. But they said he had like a 12-inch blade with him. And he would walk up and down the streets in Commercial Street through Whitechapel, terrorizing women in the middle of the night. Give me your money or I'll cut you up. I'll do this and whatever. So when the... Um, when the, the murders continued, there was a brief scare that whoever this guy is, this is the guy. He's not joking. You know, he's ripping people up in the streets. And then they actually caught the guy, John Pizer, who was supposedly leather apron. And it turned out, I, I, see, I, believe, I think he was like a mugger kind of guy in the street. He, he didn't look like the most squeaky clean guy. He looked like he was kind of mugging people, but he wasn't the murderer. But uh, once he was kind of removed from the investigation, there weren't really any strong suspects after that. Or certainly not, not a guy you can name. There, there were bits in the case, like I mentioned before, where the, the city police had a team of detectives specifically looking for people passing fake coins. So that was, you know, they didn't have a particular individual in mind, but they knew whoever it was was doing this. So they were looking for people doing that. Then you might find a guy, but it wasn't him. You know, this kind of thing. But with the exception of John Pye's a leather apron, there weren't really a lot of um, yeah, actual real suspects in the case. Who are the top two or three suspects and why are they the top two or three suspects with, you know, like motivation, suspicion and stuff like that? I mean, at the time, I mean, like I said, I mean, John Pizer was pretty much the only suspect. There was a guy called James Sadler who was arrested as well after the murder of Francis Coles, uh, which was 130 years ago yesterday. It was the murder of uh, Francis Coles. And she was found murdered at 20 past two in the morning. And it turned out that in the evening and the day before that, she'd basically been on a big bender in, in the local pubs in the area with this guy called James Sadler, who was a sailor that she'd only met like briefly before. I, when you read about it, it seems like he just got his wages. He come up to Whitechapel. He was drunk and he's chatting up the girls or something. She'd spent the day with him drinking anyway. Then by the end of the day, he was absolutely plastered. He'd attempted to get back onto his ship, but he ended up in a fight. It was a big mess. But when he, the, after the, the, the case became known, he was then arrested as a suspect. And I think, I think he might be the only person that was actually in the newspaper, it said, is he Jack the Ripper? Here he is, James Sadler. But it turned out it wasn't him. And his alibi was kind of amusing because he, having been now drinking all day, he'd wobbled back to his uh, ship down the docks. But it annoyed everybody when he got there, had a big fight, got his head kicked in and broke his ribs. 
And then so his uh, alibi to the police was I wasn't doing the murder because I was getting my head kicked in at the time and there's half a dozen people to witness that, <laughs> which was an interesting uh, alibi. But yes, it wasn't him either. But certainly after he was gone, between him and Leather Apron, there wasn't really, a, a, yeah, there weren't many other suspects in the case. The main ones people talk about now, uh, if you were to go on Wikipedia or stick some movie on us, I mean, they often talk about uh, the royal family is the most common one. Uh, there's always a royal family conspiracy theory going on in the movies, and of course that never happened at all. That's nonsense. Uh, there's certain people. I'm trying to think of some some of the most sensible ones. There's a guy called George Chapman. Uh, was born Severin Klazowski uh, in Poland in 1865, I believe. And he moved over to London. And at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders, he was living at uh, 126 Cable Street, which is only about a 10-minute like a, a walk, perhaps, from all the murder sites. Uh, but it turned out in 1903, he was arrested and hanged for being a serial killer. It turned out between 1897 and 1903, he'd, uh, he'd been living in South London at the time, but he poisoned three of his girlfriends and killed them. So when he was actually arrested and hanged, it was one of the lead inspectors on the case had made the comment, oh, it looks like you've caught Jack the Ripper at last. But nobody had ever heard of this guy until 1903, and there was not really any evidence against him. So he's one of the main suspects that we'll bring up now. And yeah, he was a serial killer living in roughly the right area, roughly the right kind of time. But no, I mean, it, it looks like it couldn't possibly have been him either. Uh, there are other suspects. There's a guy called Montague Druitt. He, he was a barrister, and he threw himself off Waterloo Bridge, I believe, and killed himself in the Thames a month after the murder of Mary Kelly, which has led some people since to think, oh, he must have been that guilty, he couldn't handle it, he's jumped in the river. I've never heard of an uncaught serial killer killing himself through guilt. And there were two murders still to go after that as well, which uh, people tend to ignore. Uh, there's, there's loads of them. There's Jack the Ripper's diary, there's Jack the Ripper's pocket watches, and just about anybody who was alive in 1888 has been named as a suspect since, and the overwhelming majority of them have no possible evidence against them whatsoever. And uh, yeah, I mean, the police never suspected any of these people at the time. It's just kind of since the movies have been made and since this, everybody puts their own theory forward. What is some information that you presented in your book? Because I was reading through a lot of things, and one thing that a lot of people said was that you actually had information in there that was not widely known. How long did you hmm. research this, and what is some of that information? I usually tell people it took nearly – I also took about uh, three and a half years, I say, but from actually writing the, the first word to holding the first copy in my hand, it was about a month short of four years total. And it's I think a lot of the evidence – in there, there's a, there are a lot of things in the book that, to the best of my knowledge, have never been printed anywhere before. But these things are in the original files. So I think a lot of like the other, it, it's not like I, uh, I mean, there are some things, I think I was very lucky to find them. But I think the, the majority of things that people read in the book go, God, I never knew that. Where did he find that out? It was in the original police file. But the last guy who read the book about, I don't know, he couldn't be bothered to sit in the archives for months on end. So it's, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff about um, my suspect as well. Are we going to name him or are we not? Shall I mention his name? Well, I'll mention, oh, we'll name him. Albert Backett was Jack the Ripper. And it was, um, he, he's a, a lot of the stuff that I mentioned about uh, Albert Backett in the back, that's entirely brand new. Like, I've never heard that before. It's all in the archives. You've got to sit there and pull it all out. But nobody's looked at him as a suspect before. Therefore, nobody's ever done all, dug all this stuff out. Yeah, a lot of the original police files, I mean, they've been there the whole time. I just think that other authors didn't go and investigate them but uh, yeah there's also a lot of stuff in the book where it's cross-referenced with like modern murder unit methods so sometimes when i get people go oh, i've never heard that before it might have been an original thing that happened in the case but you've never heard it explained like that nobody's ever looked at it like in a modern way 
And a lot of the things, something I try to do all the way through the book as well was kind of dispel a lot of the conspiracy theories. So people often say this happened and that happened. That means this. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It means something totally different. So I think it was just a case of getting all the, the conspiracy theories and the nonsense out of the way, then actually spending the time to sit there in the, in the police archives and go through the whole lot. And then, uh, yeah, eventually put it all together four years later. And uh, yeah, there we are. But I'm, I'm glad people have said that because as I was writing it, I was, I was aware that lots of this stuff hadn't been written before, but yeah, it's, it's nice to know that other people know that too. Yeah. A lot of people get into Jack the Ripper still. I mean, they dedicate a lot of time and when they had, mentioned that you had you know provided some information that wasn't widely known i was like that's you know definitely impressive with something something that often uh, something that people often get uh, surprised by uh there are certain things i point out in the book that yeah have, are in the original files but nobody's ever mentioned since like the like the, the fake coins if you were to go down to the bookstore now and buy the first 10 jack the ripper books you see i seriously doubt that any of them mention the fact that the killer was known to be passing fake coins but this is all. This is all in the police files. You know, all, everybody needs time. The, the police have teams of detectives specifically looking for people passing fake coins to prostitutes. And then, so a lot of people have said to me, "God, I never knew that about the coins." And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's been there the whole time. I've struggled to explain why other authors haven't mentioned it as well. But uh, yeah, it's all in there if you've got the, the time to sit there and go through it. So, what are a couple things that drew you to your suspect that you mentioned in the book that's not widely known as well? When I first started um, researching the book, I was originally researching George Chapman, who I said was the he was the poisoner later on. I wasn't convinced it was him, but I thought, you know, if it is him, I'll, I'll find out one way or another. And then the, the more research I did, the more I started to think, I don't think it's this guy at all. Like he, he could theoretically have done that, and he could maybe have done that, but I, I don't see how he would do that. And there's no way he could have got away with that. I thought, I don't believe it's him. And then as you're reading, and here's the old newspaper files, and here's Albert Beckett, and here he is again. And here he is again. Who the hell is this guy? And then the more research, that, that's what basically set me off. Once I decided it wasn't the other guy, and then just he is a name that keeps coming up in these reports that I've never heard of before. You say, well, who's this guy? No Ripper book talks about him. Researching it, and then, oh, that's suspicious. That's suspicious. That's just, if, if there was a thing I'd found out about him that made it look like he couldn't have done it, I absolutely would have put that in the book. You know, and it was, I'd already decided by that point as well that I thought the killer had to live somewhere in the Goodman's Fields area. And then when I eventually found out about him, where does he live? He lives in Goodman's Fields. It has to be this guy. And the more research you do, he's the right age. He fits the right description. He's got a criminal record for all the things you'd expect the serial killer to have today. He was constantly injecting himself into the investigation. He believed that he'd met the killer and spoke to him on a couple of occasions. He said he'd uh, seen Francis Coles with her killer on the night of the murder. He said that the killer was writing them letters to his house to threaten them and harass them. He said there was chalk graffiti on the side of the house. He claimed that he'd formed his own Whitechapel Vigilance Committee to catch the killer, then turned up at the inquest of Francis Coles demanding to be on the jury just when they were going to go view the body in the mortuary and then cause such a big scene when they wouldn't let him do that that the coroner threatened to throw him out of the court and, you know, if he didn't sit down and behave himself. And I think he just wanted to go see the body in the mortuary. He's constantly injecting himself all the time. Uh, he also, in 1889, he was arrested and taken to court passing counterfeit coins, exactly like the ones that the police are looking for this guy passing. He worked as a, a copper plate engraver. Uh, so as an engraver, he, had, he would have had all the tools and expertise and all the materials to manipulate these coins. He said they'd been polished brightly and machined around the edges to look more valuable. 
He could have done that in the house. And then in 1889, he was arrested and taken to court for passing counterfeit coins exactly like that, two separate occasions. He ended up going to prison uh, on a theft charge. He ended up working for a, like a homeless relief kind of charity. He stole a load of stuff from them. Uh, he got three months in prison for that. Uh, he went to prison. When he came out of prison, uh, the magistrate that sent him to prison and gave him the sentence within two days of him coming out got a letter in the post from Jack the Ripper with a piece of dried liver in it, apparently, saying that Jack the Ripper was back and he was going to get him. I thought, well, that's convenient as well, two days after. Again, I still think the uh, the letters, the original letters were nonsense, but there are so many things with Albert Backett that you, he, when he turns up at the inquest and he was speaking, he told the police that he knew who the killer was and he knew how he was doing it because all of the houses in Hanbury Street were accessible by a little string that lifted the latch. And you think that was actually the case, but there's no possible way he could have known that unless he was there himself. You see what I mean? I think when you have coincidence after coincidence after coincidence, it's not a coincidence anymore. And I think this is the only time a suspect has been put forward with actual evidence against him. And of course, it's, you know, circumstantial evidence. It was a long time ago. But there's so much of it. You can put him at every crime scene. He, he ticks every box that you'd expect. I think the police at the time must have considered him to be a nuisance, but not necessarily any further than that. But I think if this was happening today, absolutely, he is the number one person you would go around to speak to. <laughs> that is very, very intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely makes you think. And like, I'm, I'm always the same way about uh, coincidence. You know, it's a, uh, you know, one, I can understand. Two, yeah, I get mm. it. But once you start hitting three, four, five, six, that's... This isn't a coincidence anymore, yeah. I think the thing is with other suspects as well, when you look up, uh, like I say, if you go on you know, Wikipedia or whatever, there'll be a big list of suspects. And unless he's been added in since my book came out, Albert Back is probably not on there. And despite the fact that every name that is on there, there is nothing at all to tie any of these people, even to the area most of the time. You know, never mind a suspect. I think, hey, this is the first time you've got an actual guy where if this was happening now, he raises every red flag and that's never been done before i think it's uh, obviously when you're the one that writes the book you're gonna say oh yeah it's the best suspect in the best book but if if i felt there were other people had already adequately done this i wouldn't have written the book in the first place i'm absolutely convinced that it's him and i think uh, yeah i think anybody else that reads it you, you're gonna think the same thing too that being said why don't you tell everybody uh, about your book and where they can find it and also your tours uh, if anybody wants a copy of the book, uh, it's called Jack the Ripper, One Autumn in Whitechapel. Uh, it's currently available. I think it's out of stock at the moment on Amazon, but it's going back on there. If you were to Google One Autumn in Whitechapel, any link that comes up, it comes directly from me. But usually I'd say ripperworld.net uh, is my website. So if anybody goes to ripperworld.net or just Google One Autumn in Whitechapel, 430 pages, 150,000 words. It's the definitive account of the Jack the Ripper case in detail, never done before. And finally, after all this time, finally telling you who did it. <laughs> Outstanding, man. Thank you so much for joining me, man. I Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you for having me on. Any time you want to talk about serial killers, you yeah. Yeah, it's great. Anytime. I am absolutely down for that, man. You better keep in touch. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you later. Nice, man. See you later. Bye. And again, this episode was brought to you by Stereo App. You can go to Stereo.com slash podcast. I have a link posted in the show description, the show notes, and you can interact with me live and somebody else, usually, you know, another podcaster or even a couple friends of mine that are into the same stuff as me, or you personally can be my co-host as we go live. 
I answer questions on there. I go deeper with details on certain things that I've covered on the podcast. These dudes were pretty fucking legit. You didn't fuck around with them, but they wouldn't hurt anybody that wasn't in the criminal lifestyle. You know, right, like they women just... and children were off limits. And unless you were a criminal, they really didn't fuck with you. I went down to New Orleans for Crime Con. I actually didn't even go to Bourbon Street. I hit Canal Street. I always like hitting those little tight, like the tiniest restaurants I can find because for some odd reason, they usually have the best food. There was literally one called Mama's Place. You walked in there and took a number and it was like a little assembly line, man. You just walked across, picked your food. All right, let's check this last message before we go. What is the most paranormal, uh, like most dangerous paranormal um, activity? Oh, that we've personally experienced? That's actually a good question. Um, Coming right at the end here. Seven different containers of gold coins. And it goes back to like the early... 1820s 1830s and when it was cleaned up it some of them was obvious they had never been used but it was like 10 million dollars worth uh today because it was pretty much all gold and they were talking about that at first they were scared when they found it because they thought that you know maybe somebody was coming back to get that then now the containers they were in they were all old and rusty and it's kind of like an angel type it's it's one of those quote-unquote found footage films but you know it's uh it was still really really good I don't know, man. It just freaked freaked me out. <laughs> you really can't control that. I mean, if in the in the movie, obviously she's possessed, and it's like, what do you do at that point? Other than trying to do an exorcism, what do you do? You know, it's a ghost. You got a thousand different things you can do, and you they don't really seem to be threatening. But uh, being possessed, especially by you know Satan or or a top notch higher up demon. That just seems like the the worst thing that could possibly happen. See, that's how easy it is. It's pretty awesome. I really suggest you download it. And like I said, you can join me live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Get in on the conversation with me. Love to hear from you. Go to Stereo.com slash MC Podcast. Just download the Stereo app and find me at MC Podcast. Mm-hmm.